There is absolutely no question the COVID vaccine works to save lives. But science and research have not always been totally benign. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Growing up during the polio panic of the 1950s, everyone was thrilled when Dr. Salk created a vaccine. And it worked. People lined up with great enthusiasm to get the polio shot. Now, with 800,000 Americans killed by a virus, the idea that there'd be resistance to a vaccine which unquestionably saves lives would have been unthinkable. It still does baffle me and millions of others who are protected from the killer virus. It's science, after all. Mm -hmm. How is it that there can be this bizarre, nonsensical, rigid opposition? Well, as it turns out, science and research have not always been benign. Though it may sound like a scenario from a horror movie or Dr. Mengele in the Holocaust, human infection experiments sponsored by the government actually happened here. In the United States, in the mid-20th century, from 1942 to 1972, with approvals and funding from federal agencies. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today is Sidney Halpern, whose new book from Yale University Press is Dangerous Medicine, the story behind human experiments with hepatitis. The book offers insights into America's troubling past of medical experiments on people. Dangerous Medicine calls attention to ethical and policy implications for present and future medical research. And in their rigid resistance to life-saving COVID vaccines, though quite different, perhaps this frightening old specter does cast a shadow over the reality of the COVID van, uh, pandemic and its vaccine. Again, with us today is author Sidney Halpern, Professor Emerita at University of Illinois, Chicago, a lecturer in the Program in Medical Humanities and Bioethics. That's at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University, which is a very nice campus in Chicago. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Dr. Halpern. Uh, the, the 2020s provide a rather unique and interesting social and cultural context for a book like this. How did you come to write it now? And who is the target audience? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Um, the, uh, you know, I really wrote the book before the COVID outbreak um, and then faced the challenge of um, getting a publisher during it. Um, and then I had to kind of rethink how to how to talk about the book because um, it wasn't my intention to promote um, you know distrust of science, even though this is really about disturbing episodes in biomedicine's past and indeed disturbing uh, episodes in medicine's past because the government did fund these and other very dangerous experiments. Um, I came upon documents on these experiments when I was doing work for a different book and it kind of knocked my socks off. Mm. And I soon discovered that it was part of a really, a, a really big 30 year program. And I, I really wanted to understand how and why um, this kind of experimentation happened. And I, and I thought that to, 
really prevent it from happening in the future. We had to really deeply understand how it took place, the social context, the scientific context, indeed the military context, hmm. all of which I talk about in the book. Interesting. The military context, that is a, a big part of it too. So who, who is the target audience for this book? Well, you know, I, I do want uh, colleagues in the fields of biomedicine and history, bioethics, um, sociology to read this, but I, I worked very hard at making it accessible to a general reader. So I'm really hoping mm -hmm. that, that people who don't feel that they're experts in biomedicine but have an interest in um, medical research, in American history, and particularly history of World War II and the Cold War, might find this you know, engaging and interesting to find out about our past, parts of our past that are a little bit less glorious than the ones uh, we, we may think of when we think of winning World War II. Well, of course, a lot of people these days don't want to look at any history that makes them uncomfortable. They'd rather stick with their beliefs and whitewash everything. But before we go any farther, everybody's heard of hepatitis. but just And just recently, uh, science and pharmaceutical companies developed cures for hep C, which I believe is distinct from hep A and B. What happened to people during this 30-year period infected with the virus? How were their bodies affected? Yes, and there were, by my count, and it was a conservative estimate, 3,700 people who were enrolled in these experiments, although not all of these individuals actually contracted hepatitis. Right. So um, the researchers understood that they were working with the hepatitis A and B viruses, at the time these experiments took place, they hadn't yet discovered hepatitis C. Um, that happened right. after the experiments were over. Right. So, and A and B um, are, well, first of all, hep hepatitis is a disease characterized by inflammation of the liver. Mm -hmm. uh, an individual can have it without being infected with a virus, but the vast majority of cases are from a virus, from various strains. Uh, and with A, it's... Um, usually contracted by eating or ingesting food or water and mm -hmm. with B and indeed C from, um, from bodily fluids, particularly blood, most often from blood. So this is a really uncomfortable, nasty disease. You get exhausted like you do in other virus infections and you get nausea and abdominal pain. And, um, also one of the signature signs is, um, uh, jaundice, the yellowing of the eyes right. and skin. Right. That happens with A and B, and I don't believe it happens with C. But, you know, World War II, and we know that involuntary guinea pigs were in Germany, of course, for, you know, infamous, horrible experiments. Yes. They were our yes. enemy. They were using people without their consent, and that runs anathema to who we are. But as you say, there are 3,700 people enrolled in the hepatitis program. In Germany, they used people defined as less than. What categories yeah. of people were used in America? Is there any correlation? Um, okay, so in the U.S., uh, in these experiments, there are four groups of human subjects. Conscientious objectors to the military draft during World War II, prison inmates, um, mental patients and individuals and institutions for the mentally disabled. 
I, I will make a distinction here. Yeah, it's terrible, particularly the people who are disabled. It's, it's um, very distressing. I will make a distinction between the U.S. program and the Nazi experiments. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, you know, the Nazi experiments, people were in camps that were dedicated to exterminating them. Yes. And it was the assumption in Nazi experiments that either the patients would die as a result of the experiments or even be sacrificed at the end of them deliberately. Now, mind you, some people did live through them. Mm. Uh, this was not the case in the U.S. And indeed, the conscientious objectors were, I would suggest, they were actual real volunteers. Mm. And both they and the prisoners signed consent documents. They weren't the kind we use today, but they did state that they did state that the individuals who were part of the experiments know, knew that they were participating in experiments where they would be infected with this virus. The other groups, I don't think that they were willing volunteers. Uh, with the disabled children, and indeed there were children, yeah. the parents did consent. Um, and, you know, if we want to talk about it a little more, uh, we have to understand the terrible conditions in some of the institutions for this disabled during this period. Yes. Um, uh, so it was in the context of there being outbreaks of serious infectious disease within the institutions, which were really poorly staffed, very understaffed. Um, yeah, so the researchers argued, well, look at where we're gonna, we're gonna give these people, these young children, the disease, we're gonna take good care of them and then they're gonna be immune. So it's even better than if they mm. got the disease from other patients or from caregivers because the diseases were so rampant, including, including hepatitis. So, you know, I think that falls under the category of you can't do ethical research in an unethical situation, if that makes sense. The huh. situation is unethical. Oh, that's interesting. That I, I Yeah, that may, that's an interesting point that uh, how can you do ethical research in an unethical situation? Of course, this is by our current standards, uh, which, which yes, were different then. I mean... You know, I, in in preparing for this, you know, I was reminded of uh, in Massachusetts uh, there was Bridgewater State Hospital, rather infamous. Uh, sometimes people with mental illness were incarcerated there for decades. So perhaps you know, understanding this historical environment may help explain what unfolded in the hepatitis experiments, and that maybe uh, it, it was. Uh, with benign intentions and, and hopefully doing some good. I I think the intentions were benign, um, but I don't want to give everybody who orchestrated this a total pass, <laughs> if that makes sense. Oh, I yeah. mean, I think we do have to understand the context, and, and there was much in the context that allowed this to happen. Um, and I, I think researchers get carried away by big ideas uh -huh. and the, the big ideas in this case were we're going to find a cure for this disease. We're going to find treatments for this disease. And I think that and some of these ideas are powerful ideas. Um, the idea that you could isolate and cultivate a bacteria or a virus and you can modify it and use it to create immunity without symptoms. That's a really powerful, yeah. big idea. Yeah. But you know, it can take a you know a half a century to translate the big idea into a safe and effective treatment with people, and I think sometimes researchers get overconfident and get carried away and don't look at the real risks that they're imposing on their human subjects. So, 
I think, overconfidence and even hubris if we want to find fault. Yes. On the other hand, hepatitis is a real problem in the American military during World War II. There's no doubt about it. And after the war, researchers discovered that hepatitis was contaminating the American blood supply. Just like in the in the 80s, um, the, mm-hmm. the public health community got so concerned about AIDS and HIV um, in, in blood. And, and people who were getting a lot of uh, transfusions were contracting hepati- uh, AIDS from transfusions. So this was going on in the late 40s with hepatitis. So it became a real public health emergency and a perceived emergency for national security because in the context of the threat of nuclear attack by the Soviet Union, uh, pl- uh, military planners uh, really thought that vast quantities of blood would be critical in, the, in, a, in a public health emergency, a medical emergency created by a, a, an attack from outside. So all of this created tremendous impetus for these experiments. Interesting. So they, they so they, they there was some public good that they were trying to glean from these experiments. It sounds like, yeah, because indeed, I, I know indeed. that uh, yes. in the military, uh, my wife's father actually was in Korea, and there was some, uh, I believe there was some hepatitis in the blood there. Indeed, there was, yes. Wow. And it was a real problem because if if a soldier became injured and was given serum or it was usually plasma, actually, there was a 20% chance that they contract hepatitis. Yikes. Just, you know, in, in Korea. Yeah, that's very, very high indeed. I'm I'm curious about the processes used in writing this book. Uh, tell us about that, please. Like talking to individuals and and tell us about what went into it in in terms of the process. Well, a lot of it um, was going to archives. I spent months in archives, and at the end of the book, there's a list of record groups I went to. So a lot of it, and I have to say that. It may sound weird, but but I, I to me it's historical detection to find records and then to take these sort of little pieces of information and sew them and weave them together into a big story is is really satisfying to me. But the the thing I would say is the most satisfying in writing the book was interviewing people whose lives um, intersected with the experiments, and I was very lucky in this regard. So I interviewed two men who at the time were in their nineties who, when they were in their 20s, were um, conscientious objectors Mm -hmm. to World War II, and they were subjects in hepatitis experiments, and these government-sponsored experiments. And it was was really delightful to talk to these men. They were, um, they were, you know, these are people who have a moral core. They weren't willing to fight. Now, mind you, I'm not a pacifist. They were pacifists, and I respect it because they acted consistent with their beliefs. They didn't want to kill for the war, but they were willing to die for it. And they actually said this. Wow. Um, um, so they knew what they were doing by getting into these experiments, uh, for the most part. Um, and and I can see how, I mean, being a conscientious objector, you, you oftentimes uh, you want to do something for the public good and for uh, the you know national service, and I can see how this would fit in uh, quite nicely with that uh, uh, basic context. For those... Indeed, it did. And yeah, go ahead. The other thing they did was they did a tremendous amount of work uh, as aides in mental institutions and what were called schools for the training schools for people with disabilities. They were 
really spearheaded a social movement for the uh, improve the conditions of people in these institutions. So um, they should be remembered for that as well. Indeed. And if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're digging into uh, our, our past history and hopefully learning from it. Uh, our guest today is uh, Sidney Halpern, who's got a brand new book called Dangerous Medicine, the story behind human experiments with hepatitis. And I believe the first hepatitis infection study was initiated in Virginia in 1942. Tell us about that, please. Tell us about that. What was that place like? Indeed, it was. So the location of this experiment was an institution at the time called Lynchburg uh, State Colony. Um, It had many other names. Uh, I think most recently it was uh, East Virginia, Central Virginia uh, State School. Um, and the backdrop of this was a massive outbreak of hepatitis in the U.S. military. Um, and the whole story is really pretty amazing. The source of this outbreak was the use of a contaminated yellow fever vaccine just at the beginning of the war. And it turned out when I looked, you know, I looked at the archival documents that, um, the army didn't really know that it was going to be sending soldiers into areas of the world where there was a lot of yellow fever because it's, it's really a, a disease of, in South America and, and uh, the tropics, including parts of Africa. Um, but um, the military was also very concerned that Japan might try to weaponize yellow fever. And, mm-hmm. and vaccination was one of the, the ways to prevent um, exposure of the military to this uh, potential um, germ warfare threat. Unfortunately, there were decisions made about the manufacture, the formulation of this of this vaccine that were turned out to be highly flawed. But at any rate, mm. um, in retrospect, it appears that 300,000 American soldiers were exposed to hepatitis and may have had cases of hepatitis. Uh, about during 1942, about 50,000 were actually hospitalized. But many of the people affected were never hospitalized. They probably had uh, less severe cases. And this was hepatitis B, which um, one can have without severe, uh, without sev- a severe case. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, anyway, the, the Army, particularly a, the Army Surgeon General's Office and its Preme- Preventive Medicine Division, uh, wanted to needed to find out where this uh, um, outbreak was coming from, and that got them into a study of hepatitis because they discovered that some of the uh, blood serum used in the formulation of that yellow fever vaccine, which was included because the thinking was that uh, the virus needed um, to have blood to stabilize it to keep the the yellow fever vaccine stable, that some of these lots were contaminated. And um, then they use the contaminated lots to actually do transmission experiments, knowing that the vaccine lots they were using were going to make people sick. So they wanted to confirm that this was was a transmissible virus. So they would give it to some subjects at Lynchburg State School. And then when those people got hepatitis, they would draw their blood and give some of it to another patient there 
who would develop the same illness. And this proved that it was a, that hepatitis was caused by a transmissible virus. Well, that that was a, a useful tool for them to have. I, I I do wonder about the government's role in this, either state or federal or perhaps both. Did they help gain scientists, experimenters, researchers gain access to disabled adults and children in the hepatitis experiments? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, and it wasn't only, okay, so one of the things I argue that during World War II, the U.S. government really mobilized science to win the war. Uh-huh. And that was true with the Manhattan Project, with the atom bomb, which ended the war. Yes. And also with radar, which some would say the bomb ended the war, but radar won the war. Mm. So it it pursued biomedicine uh, as aggressively, although per not, perhaps we're not as aware of it. Um, and it wasn't just, uh, and this was the scientific community in the country overall, the biomedical community, was engaged in this activity. So it was multiple federal agencies and mm-hmm. multiple um, scientists at very prestigious universities who were funded by several um, um, agencies of the U.S. government, including the Office of, of, of Scientific Research and Development under the President uh, Roosevelt, and also by in the Army through the Army Epidemiology Board which was particularly focused on diseases, um, uh, outbreaks in the military. No, I and they funded, yeah, they funded experiments done by university researchers and also experiments uh, actually performed by uh, researchers at the National Institutes of Health at the time as well. They were involved in this as well. Everybody was together working yes. for the war effort. That's what the, that's what the ethos was. This is for the common good. Uh-huh. And, Sometimes for the common good, uh, you know, there are things that happen along the way, but perhaps perhaps it actually did uh, benefit the common good. And personally, I, I rather happily participated in a clinical trial back in 2009, and I, I got the real thing, not a placebo, and it worked to cure the potentially deadly disease ahead. And I'll tell you, the paperwork to assure my fully informed consent was very thorough. There were a lot of signatures yes. and initials I had to do on a whole bunch of pages. <laughs> yes. What were the standards yes. for determining consent during this trial? Was it clearly defined in law? Or what, what about that gaining consent? As you said, the parents would oftentimes consent for their kids. But what? T- yes. talk more about that. So the standards of consent were different um, during that period. Today, we're very concerned when parents consent for their children that they do so without coercion. That was not uh, a dominant concern in the 40s and 50s. And also in the 40s and 50s um, and in the 60s, the consent documents were actually, if you will, waiver and release forms. And what that meant was, well, they did state to the potential subject that they were going to, in this case with hepatitis, they were going to be given a virus and they probably get sick. They might even die. Mm, mm. Um, But they were signing away um, any legal liability for any of the institutions and researchers that were performing 
the experiments. So there are exculpatory provisions within the consent documents, which today are not allowed. Ah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, hopefully we learn from mistakes in the past. And, but correct me if I'm wrong, is it not the case even now that people are offered pay to participate in potentially hazardous medical experiments? And I wonder if income insecure people have replaced members of identified vulnerable groups. And what about this might be ethically troubling, paying people to uh, participate in you know, experiments on their bodies? Yes, extremely good point. Um, so one of the results of experiments like these experiments that I write about and others um, that in the 70s became identified um, research abuses and there was a lot of pushback in the 70s. And it resulted in a uh, regulatory system, which uh, researchers in the United States now conform to. And it actually had a big impact around, around the world as well, that our regulations in this country. Um, so we don't, it's, it's much harder now to enroll individuals who are in prisons, in institutions for the um, developmentally disabled, and it's much harder to do research with children. So non-therapeutic research is not likely to be done for these individuals. Um, so what goes on now is that there are for-profit research organizations that um, conduct a lot of research, and much of it now by uh, pharmaceutical companies, which became major players um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, so yes, when individuals are recruited into dangerous experiments without medical benefit, and, and see the experiment that you were part of, a clinical trial, I wouldn't classify it as non-therapeutic because as you pointed sure, out, it worked. some people had the placebo, but right. some people actually got an intervention that helped cure or control a serious illness. So the experiments I'm talking about, right. the individuals had, there was no potential benefit. And it's great when you're part of a clinical trial where there's, you know, where you actually benefit. Um, and that indeed goes on. But for the other kinds of experiments, people are getting paid. And yeah. of course, the people who are, you know, who are, who are taking money to take risks are going to be people who need the money. So, yes, I'm very concerned that we've moved from, if we, if you will, expecting some disadvantaged people um, to take risks for the rest of us, that now we're moving the emphasis or our, our system is basically, if you will, exploiting uh, people at the lower end of the socioeconomic stratus. I'm very concerned about this. Is, there, is that being addressed? You're concerned about it? No doubt other people in the uh, scientific research community are concerned about it. Well, it you know, it's difficult because the argument is that, well are these individuals ex being exposed to any more risk than if they worked in a coal mine or, or firefighters or police officers? See what I'm saying? Yeah. So those are the kinds of arguments mm -hmm. that are used to justify. I, I, I'm less persuaded by these arguments. And of course, um, you know, we live in a highly unequal society. So uh, researchers, are, they could say they're not doing anything different from the rest of us. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That we accept <laughs> these tremendous economic um, disparities. Yeah. 
And so these economic disparities are, are being a part of our research uh, regime as well. I'm not comfortable with it, but, um, you know, maybe I'll start making a fuss about this and see where I get. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's true. I mean, people, so many people, especially these days, I mean, I remember learning in history about the Gilded Age. This is much worse than that, I think. And there's so many millions of people who live in, you know, really desperate situations who don't have $400, you know, if they had to have an emergency that costs $400, they wouldn't be able to afford it. They wouldn't, couldn't come up with that. And so the things that yes. people do, as you say, working in coal mines are just terribly dangerous jobs for not a lot of money. This sort of fits in with that uh, context, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I really feel comes out of the book is that, you know, we can look back now and say it was terrible that we did these things to people in institutions for the developmentally disabled and people in mental hospitals. But back then, it well, it, 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 it probably did look bad because the researchers tried to hide some of their human subjects, and those are the people they hid. But the other experiments were public. I mean, people were not appalled by them. Um, the story was that prisoners are making important contributions to the public good they're during during the korean war they're they're being patriotic contributions to science and the public good and they're as brave and patriotic as uh, a soldier in korea and this these these narratives were accepted by the american public so you know idea what's our ideas about what's acceptable with with medical research really really do change over time you know, maybe in the future we will look back and say it was really terrible to use people who are income insecure, but um, today most people don't see it that way. Even bioethicists don't see it that way. Interesting. And there's the forever discussion about the ethics of using, <clears throat> excuse me, the atomic bomb. And, you know, obviously it caused 100,000 or so people's deaths and who knows, you know, how much radiation poisoning. On the other hand, yeah, I think it could be argued very effectively that it saved possibly a million people's lives, Americans, for you know not having to go in there. So there are these choices, and this is a, a military time. We were at war, and uh, yes, it kind of fits in that context. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, science and experiments. Our guest today is uh, Sidney Halpern, who's got a brand new book from Yale University Press called Dangerous Medicine, the story behind human experiments with hepatitis. And many of us, including myself, have been taken aback by the mistrust in biomedical science. I mean, my generation grew up holding doctors and science in great esteem. Yeah, they, they like, you know, were almost sainted. Uh, because of, well, so much that was going on, research into polio, etc. Uh, dis this distrust is, a lot of it is in the context of Trumpists insisting something is true when it's demonstrably not true. And the legitimate election of Joe Biden, they don't believe it. These same people fight against teaching American history, which may discomfort them, and insist on teaching only what reassures their pre-existing beliefs. What's your take on why there's so much distrust of science today. Is there something about the profound anti-elitism exhibited by this new right-wing populism that factors in? What about this, this anti-elitism factor? 
Yeah, um, I think part of it comes from, you know, the currency of populist political sentiments. Um, so I think people from this political point of view are suspicious of elites and the authority of elites. Um, and they don't want to defer judgments to people who they perceive as being disrespectful to them. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, this whole story about microchips in, in the vaccines, <laughs> I know. It, it, of course, although I have to say, apparently chips are put in dogs that way. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> to identify well, lost dogs. But it's not happening with people, I can assure everybody. And it's not through uh, a needle, it, I don't think. I mean it's yeah. it's inserted, but go ahead. Yeah. But I think there's an underlying fear among some people that others are trying to control them. Right. Because they don't feel they have power and others are trying to control them. Right. Um but with biomedicine it's also I think complicated because even a hundred years ago when scientific medicine um was on the rise and interventions for people were being designed in scientific laboratories. There was a pushback. Um, there was an anti-vivisection mo uh, right. movement. Uh -huh. it's, best, it's best known for being against animal experiments, but it also, it also focused on human experimentation. And there was a fear that researchers would put science ahead of the, the priority of the patients they were they were treating. And then in the 60s and 70s, uh, we in the country started hearing a lot about research abuses, like, like one of the ones, like one of the hepatitis experiments, and also about the uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiments, yes. where researchers from the U.S. Public Health Service withheld treatment from more than 400 African-American men who had tertiary syphilis, late-stage syphilis. God, yeah, I know. Um, I, I yeah. wanted to say I, I have African-American friends who, in the early stages of the COVID vaccine rollout, they really distrusted uh, the the idea, and not without reason. Um, prob probably not everybody knows about the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study. Maybe you can tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, again, it, it was a study in which... Um, more than 400 African-American men were enrolled in a study, um, which was originally supposed to give treatment, but in very, very quickly became a study to track untreated syphilis among black people. And um, the researchers deceived the, the human subjects to telling them and telling them that they were going to get treatment. They actually, and the worst part is they actually stood in the way of the men getting treatment. Um, and so, um, and this went on for 30, basically 30 years until the 19, until 1972 when it became uh, front page news across in, in um, newspapers across the country. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, unfortunately, it was just one of a number of experiments done on with people who were largely marginalized from marginalized groups. Right. So, um, you know, that people who are mentally, who are disabled, the hepatitis experiments. Um, there was another experiment done at uh, an institution in New York state called Jewish chronic disease hospital where people were old and uh, disabled um, from their age. So yeah, 
the use of vulnerable groups is really, really a problem. So I think distrust, you know. On the other hand, in addition to these stories about research abuses, there are also stories about research, medical research, producing remarkable life-enhancing breakthroughs. So it's sure. like we, we bounce between these stories about two extremes, and we don't have a lot of stories about, um, well, in, in my book, I talk a lot about a period of 15, 20 years where researchers are slogging away at these studies, and they really weren't getting anywhere. So a, a lot of research, including medical research, People are trying very hard and they aren't getting anywhere because science is hard and sometimes you can go decades before you actually get an outcome which is going to produce something that's going to be ultimately useful. That's just unfortunately the way science is. We, we want to think of science as you know fast breakthroughs and we got yeah. that with our COVID vaccines fairly fast, although indeed researchers have been working on these RNA technologies, um, messenger RNA technologies uh-huh. for, for decades. But we really did get quick vaccines, but it often doesn't happen that way. And that has brought up some doubts that, you know, I've heard people say, well, it happened so quick. I mean, how do we know what's going to happen down the road, the long-term effect of the uh, COVID vaccine? Any uh, thoughts on that? Well, you know, before this book, I wrote a book on vaccine risks. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a particular expert on the mRNA technologies, but from my read of vaccine risks and you know all medical procedures have risk and vaccines among them True. but my read on this is when there's going to be a serious um bad outcome that there are signs of this quite soon after the vaccination for i'll just give one example one thing that can happen is an immunological response is called um Guillain-Barre and this can this can be, you know, very, very, it can be life-threatening, but it also can really powerfully affect a person's ability to move, et cetera. Um, but the onset of this condition is within two or three months of, of the vaccination. Um, and my read of even the very, very unlikely serious outcomes from these vaccines is that the signs of it occur quite quickly. I don't anticipate long-term consequences from and, the mRNA uh, vaccines. And, and it's, I really don't. It's rather clear what the consequences of not getting a vaccine is. I mean, Very, hello. very, very clear. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Americans love to simplify things to heroes and villains. In terms of heroes, we got the Wright yes. brothers, Thomas Edison, Watson and Crick, and Jonas Salk. But the truth is, in each case, it was not really lone geniuses who who came up with the with the answer who saved the day you know on a white horse coming in science takes place in communities as you say and that there's anything but a straight path to scientific certainty the universe of data and evidence changes over time this of course can lead to doubts but as as you argue while the changing advice can be frustrating it actually reflects the fact that science is working Please explain what you mean. Indeed. Well, you know, I, I think the last two years, which has been so frustrating for yeah, all of us, really. uh, um, shows how kind of science works. If you, if we didn't have so much skin in the game, we could learn from it more easily. Um, but, you know, the advice 
uh, that, that were given. Sometimes it's really frustrating for me because I, I, I feel like yelling back at the TV, no, 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 don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> You're wrong. But um, oh, yeah. uh, they say it I anyway. Think, Go ahead. Yeah, they say it anyway. So as more evidence, as we get more evidence, as researchers get more evidence about these uh, viruses, the advice changes. And also remember the populations of viruses is changing. Just the Omicron is, is taking over. So, so, you know, and, and viruses exist in populations. Um, It's not just the little bug that that we inhale or whatever. It's, it's a whole bunch of them and they're competing with each other for dominance. Mm. Um, And, and so, as researchers get more evidence, then the advice does change. And in general, um, you know, science is provisional. It's uh, the research communities come up with agreements about the nature of things based on their read of the evidence, and they're struggling hard to get evidence. Uh, and particularly at the cutting edge, where things aren't really known, then then the, their conception of what the nature of things is is going to change so mm-hmm. science of scientific truths end up being mutable and that's what we've been stuck with over the last two years that and a lot of difficulties planning <laughs> like you know covid tests uh, hopefully we're going to solve that problem i i, I really think uh, that we ought to be able to do that pretty soon i would think so and, and you certainly took a uh precautions, perhaps not intentionally, by burying yourself in uh, research <laughs> and going through yes. old books and things like that. Um, yes. So here we are in the mid-20s of the 21st century already. Amazing to me. What, what do you think the biggest, most worrisome current public misconceptions about science are? I suppose that could be a whole show in itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been talking about some of them. One is that science is you know, is that breakthroughs are really made by these heroes, these individuals where I would argue that it's, you know, these are community activities. And and when we get somebody um, that, you know, that we um, award with a prize, they're really, if you will, standing on the soldiers of so many other people to make that possible. Yes. You know, and that, and that there's a straight path to scientific certainty, but also, I think that we 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 want to consider scientists independent from the social context, and scientists want to think of science as a world unto itself. They don't want to really think that you know that the society outside is affecting what they're doing. But you know, I I from particularly looking at the hepatitis, the world of hepatitis research, the social context really powerfully shaped what kinds of questions researchers pursued, and also how they went about doing their research and what they considered to be an ethical experiment or, or one that's acceptable given the wartime and cold war context. Um, that was certainly the case with the hepatitis experiments. Um, I guess I didn't emphasize something else about the context. Researchers emphasized continually that they were unable to find an animal to use in transmission experience. They couldn't find an animal that was susceptible mm-hmm. to hepatitis. They later did, uh, but they would justify them in part by saying, well, we can't do this with animals. Therefore, we need to do it on people. And um, 
we're asking people to make a contribution to the common good. Um, and, and, you know, the wartime effort and the lack of, a, uh, of an animal model emboldened medical researchers to do these experiments. But we're left with the question, okay, if, people, if some people are going to be asked to make sacrifices for the common good, who do we ask to do that? Mm. You know, who, who, is, who is acceptable? And, and should we do it in all circumstances? You know, no one ever did a human experiment deliberately giving people polio, for example. But they did it with hepatitis. Am I making sense? So how do you decide what's too much risk that you're not going to do this? Who, who, is an accept, who are the acceptable people to be asked to do this? Wow. So I, we're left with all of these questions. And I, there, of course, aren't easy answers to this. And of course, as you said, there's there's hubris, which, you know, it 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 affects society at large as as well as the researchers, you know, like wanting to be a hero, flying too close to the sun, whatever. Yes, uh, yes, it, yes. It, it does play a role in there. Now, what about compensation to the people who may have experienced injuries from the research? Is there a system now in place? Is the only option filing lawsuits, which are often crazy expensive and therefore extremely discriminatory for low-income people? What about that uh, yeah. compensation yeah. aspect? So this is one of the things I emphasize in the book. Um, and so this is a, a good opportunity for me to bring up another issue that we haven't mentioned yet. And that is the delayed harm from the experiments. So researchers understood the the immediate risk to hum, to human subjects of getting hepatitis there was a there's a small risk with hepatitis b that a person will contract um fulminant hepatitis failure and this is a condition where the immune system in trying to get rid of the hepatitis b virus actually attacks um liver cells to the extent that it, it essentially uh, eliminates the liver as a yes. functioning organism yeah now, this is a, it's a very low risk, but, you know, once you have fulminant hepatitis, it's, it's 80% fatal. Mm. But the problem with hepatitis B and C also is that some people become carriers. And um, researchers understood that some could fail to eliminate the virus from their bodies, but they didn't understand the long-term risk to the carrier. Uh, the short-term risk is they can affect somebody else, but the long-term risk to the carrier is that two or three decades later, they can contract cirrhosis or liver cancer. And the uh, Centers for Disease Control has estimated that with hepatitis B, that a quarter of carriers of hepatitis B uh, die prematurely from cirrhosis or liver cancer. Now, um, with hepatitis B, a relatively small percentage of adults become carriers, but with hepatitis C, the vast majority of adults become hepatitis carriers. And unfortunately, some of the experiments giving um, human subjects blood containing hepatitis contained hepatitis C. Uh, researchers weren't aware of it at the time, but it nonetheless did take place. So we don't know. There was no tracking of these individuals. There was no long-term follow-up. We don't know how many people became carriers or what the long-term effect was. 
And today, we also have no system for compensating people, um, except on a few occasions where there have been government actions, for example, groups now who are uh, called um, atomic uh, volunteers. Um, some of the people who were exposed to radiation during World War II in, in radiation experiments, uh, atomic veterans, they're called. Uh, have been have been giving compensations, but it's a one-time um, congressional act for a very limited number of uh, human subjects. So yes, we really need uh, to do something, particularly for experiments that are non-therapeutic, not like the one you talked about participating in, yeah. but uh, so experiments where people had nothing to gain whatsoever. Mm. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a little bit of uh, mid-20th century history and uh, and the place of science in our society. Our guest today is Sidney Halpern, who's got a new book, Dangerous Medicine, the Story Behind Human Experiments with Hepatitis. What brought the hepatitis program to an end? It ended in 1972. Why, Indeed, yes. Why did it end? It was a period of an American history where um, uh, just, you know, post-civil rights movement in the 50s, where um, there was a lot of turmoil about rights in general and rights of human subjects, rights of prisoners, rights of individuals and institutions for the mentally uh, compromised. Um, and there was finally public blowback or publicly visible blowback about hepatitis experiments. And the, um, the uh, focus of these were experiments at Willowbrook State School, an institution on Staten Island, um, which housed thousands of individuals with developmental disabilities. Mm. There was a 17-year-long project at Willowbrook State School again, funded by the Armed Forces Epidemiology Board um, and uh, overseen by researchers at New York University. And they set up a unit in uh, the school that where newly admitted children between the ages of three and 10 were um, housed for a period of time um, and were human subjects before they were then placed into regular wards at the institution. Um, as many as 800 children went through this special research unit in that 17 year period. Um, and unlike other experiments that had taken place, hepatitis experiments that had taken place uh, in earlier years, the researchers were unable to keep these kind of hidden. Um, and I think in part because the institution itself was so large, so public, and also because it was the focus of a lot of activism centered on the very poor conditions um, at, the, at the institution itself. Mm. Um, I can't imagine. So, yeah. Um, so there were there was a social movement um, both targeting the hepatitis experiments um, these came to light when um, a well-known insider whistleblower, Henry Beecher, uh -huh. published an article in New England Journal um, 
pointing to 22 experiments in which he argued American researchers were subjecting human subjects to undue risk without adequate informed consent. And very quickly, the press identified Willowbrook as one of those 22 cases. And it became, um, there were many, many articles in major newspapers about about experiments at, at Willowbrook. In the meantime, parents at Willowbrook mobilized because in the 70s, the state of New York, this, Willowbrook was a state institution, uh, the, state, the state cut back funding and cut massive numbers of caregivers at Willowbrook. So the Boy. poor conditions became absolutely inhuman. Um, Robert Kennedy came and, and said it was wrote that it was a snake pit right. that it violated the concept that the civil rights of, of anyone in the institution that it was it was just appalling and as a result of a social movement of parents and caregivers at the institution um, who brought a class action suit against the state of uh, New York and they won uh, and as a result of that, um, the state was required to, fu- to find community placements for people in the institution. And it, it basically ended up shutting the institution down. So that meant the, the hepatitis unit could no longer function because there were no incoming um, new children into the institution. Wow, there's all different ways of ending bad things. Yes, and And yes. clearly you don't, I'm sure, want to encourage or exacerbate the situation of distrust in biomedical science in general. And there, as you say, there is a great deal of ethically sound research with human subjects going on that's aimed at disease prevention and treatment. And we, we benefit from this work and need it to continue. What, what still needs to be done to address concerns raised by your book? Well, I think um, a big one is to, is to create a system for compensating research injuries. I mm-hmm. think that's really, really important. Um, you know, and I, I also think that we need to think carefully about who we're asking to be part of dangerous experiments without benefit to them. Right. Um, I do think that's really important. And I think it would be great if we figured out ways of um, getting more people involved, of seeing research participation as a, uh-huh. a service, a public service, just like some people decide to go into the army, that we should put more effort to valorizing people who enroll in medical studies that with potential benefit to others. You know, we used to have a Peace Corps. Maybe we need a research corps. Ah. Um, And maybe biomedical scientists need to seriously consider how to make the public and particularly potential research subjects feel they're partners in something. You know what I mean? Rather than us and them, maybe we're all working together to try to come up with better treatments and prevention of of diseases. And I think this would require giving out more information, not just what's on a consent form of what the risks are, but also like, what's the logic of this? What's the design? What are our goals? Uh, If we're making it, we don't want to compromise the study outcomes, but I think we could, I think, I think the research community could do more in making uh, people feel they're part of a common enterprise. I think that would be really important. Yeah, it seems like the the flip side of when sci- when researchers tried to hide what was going on 
more transparency. <laughs> I mean, yes, you know, yes. That, that transparency about things in the past that maybe shouldn't have been done. <laughs> that would be good. It would be. Well, there's a lot to be gained from science, no doubt about it. We, you know, and they're part of uh, the rest of us too. They're not isolated. They're not up on a pedestal, as much as some of them would like to be seen that way. So it's you know they're they're part of society. We have to uh, recognize that that we all have responsibilities. And I like the idea of being partners in it. That can be a good thing. The book is called Dangerous Medicine, the story behind human experiments with hepatitis. It's put out by uh, Yale University Press, and our guest has been its author, Sydney Halpern. Thank you so much. Uh, very informative stuff. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Tire!